Hey folks, it's your host Nico here. I am still on paternity leave, so I will not be hosting this episode. I'm spending some time with the little ones, taking some time off, but I should be back at the helm come August, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, so to speak, is in the very capable hands of my colleague Tyler McQueen, who is coming to you again with another excellent historical look at free speech stories from 19th century America. On the last episode, Tyler explored how free speech became a cause of many abolitionists. And if you haven't listened to that episode yet, stop what you're doing, give it a listen. It's fantastic. This episode is also fantastic. And it fast forwards a couple of years from the stories that Tyler shared in the last episode. And it looks at the Civil War and how, as is often the case during wartime, civil liberties were among the war's casualties. Abraham Lincoln is rightly regarded as an American hero, in my opinion, and arguably the greatest president in American history. We have a beautiful stone monument to him in our nation's capital, just a few miles from where I sit now. But in executing the war, was Lincoln right to punish dissent, to ignore judicial orders, and to unilaterally suspend the rip of habeas corpus? Tyler paints a compelling portrait of the time, of the Civil War, and of the infringement on civil liberties that happened during that war, while presenting the arguments on all sides, including those arguments made by Lincoln himself to justify the infringements on civil liberties. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's episode. What do you think? Were Lincoln's restrictions of civil liberties during the Civil War justified? Were they appropriate exercises of presidential prerogative during the gravest emergency America has ever faced? You can let us know. You can write in to so to speak at thefire.org. We do read every email, and I try and respond to each one that comes in. Now, before I turn it over to Tyler, I also wanted to flag that we will be hosting a live webinar conversation on July 20th at 3 p.m. Eastern time, in which we'll recap the free speech cases during this past Supreme Court term and turn it over to you, the listener, to ask our experts on the show questions about the cases. If you subscribe to the So To Speak email newsletter, you should have all the details in your inbox about how to register. But if you don't have that email, we'll have a link to register here in the show notes. If you'd like to subscribe to the So To Speak email newsletter, and you should, you can go to sotospeakpodcast.com, scroll all the way to the bottom, you'll see a box to register for those emails. Again, sotospeakpodcast.com. I'll still be on leave on the 20th, so I won't be hosting the Supreme Court review conversation, but FIRE's VP of litigation, Darpana Sheth, will fill in for me, and she'll be interviewing FIRE General Counsel Ronnie London and FIRE Chief Counsel Bob Cornrevier, both of whom have been guests on this show before. In fact, Bob is a guest on this episode of the show, as you'll hear. And among the cases they'll discuss are the recent decisions in 303 Creative v. Lennis, which is the web designer case, and Counterman v. Colorado, which is the true threats case, and they'll also discuss other cases from the term. So I hope you'll tune in on the 20th, but if you can't make it, don't worry. We'll run it as a so-to-speak episode shortly thereafter. Now, without further ado, over to Tyler. Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression.
Before he took office on March 4, 1861, President-elect Abraham Lincoln watched helplessly as seven states seceded from the Union and declared themselves to be a new nation, the Confederate States of America. A lawyer from Illinois with a single congressional term to his credit, Lincoln was unprepared to address the growing tension in the country he had been tasked with leading. In the previous decade, he had thought and spoken extensively about the freedoms and rights denied to enslaved persons across the nation, as well as the danger that slavery posed to the country. Southern states knew of Lincoln's beliefs all too well, and when he was elected to the presidency in 1860, they seceded to protect the institution of slavery. But in his career to that point, there had been little need for him to consider assertions of government power, and even less need to imagine what those powers might look like during times of war. But during the trip from his hometown of Springfield, Illinois, to the nation's capital, Lincoln tried his hand at doing just that. We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic chords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land, will yet swell the chorus of the Union, when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. But in the end, Lincoln's appeals to the South failed. The Confederate attack on Fort Sumner on April 12, 1861, meant only one thing. War had arrived. The ideological debate over slavery, which had dominated American discourse since the American founding, stepped out from behind the lectern and printing press and onto the battlefield. Pamphlets and petitions were replaced with bullets and bayonets. What follows is the story of a nation straining to hold itself together and the lengths political and military leadership was willing to go to keep it from tearing itself apart. The issue of civil liberties during the Civil War has been hotly debated and contested since the war itself. Scholars critical of Lincoln's presidency have singled out his apparent disregard for civil liberties as the greatest failure of his administration. In contrast, others claim that restricting certain liberties was essential to maintain order in a nation divided by war. This episode will seek out the tension, explore it, and present the facts for you to draw your own conclusions. The long legal and military fight over American civil liberties first erupted in the nation's border states. A point of concern for the North throughout the war, the border states were the few that allowed for slavery but did not secede. These states included Maryland, Delaware, Missouri, and Kentucky. From the beginning, Maryland was a source of much anxiety. A week after the attack on Fort Sumner, a Massachusetts regiment heading south toward Washington to help defend the city was stopped by a violent mob in Baltimore. Later that same evening, locals burnt Baltimore's key railroad bridges, claiming they acted out of fear that northern troops would attack the city in response to the riot. The Baltimore riots and attacks on critical infrastructure cut Washington off from the rest of the north. Northerners were outraged. Around April 19th, there were riots in Baltimore, and a mob uh, had attacked Massachusetts and Pennsylvania soldiers passing through the city. There were about four soldiers dead, 12 civilians dead, and about 36 wounded. So this was no small affair. This is Joseph R. Fornieri, 
professor of political science at the Rochester Institute of Technology and the director of the Center for Statecraft, Law, and Liberty. The next day, uh, Lincoln met with Mayor Brown, who seemed to be sympathetic to the rebels. That's Mayor uh, Brown of, of Baltimore. And Lincoln reprimands him and says, you know, after the attack of Fort Sumter, troops were sent to the defense of Washington, and you would have me break my oath and surrender the government without a blow. Lincoln is extremely frustrated. The Capitol is vulnerable. There's no standing army at this time to protect the Capitol. By this time, Virginia had already succeeded. So the, the Capitol is encircled by, by slave states with riots in Baltimore preventing Union forces from securing the capital. After the Baltimore riot, rumors began to spread that Maryland itself might soon declare secession. In fact, its governor, Thomas H. Hicks, went as far as calling a special session of the Maryland legislature to convene to discuss the matter. The Union's General-in-Chief, Winifield Scott, wrote to Lincoln requesting permission to arrest any pro-secession politicians. Lincoln refused but he kept the door open for military response. The Maryland legislature assembles tomorrow, and not improbably, will take action to arm the people of that state against the United States. The question has been submitted to me whether it would not be justifiable for you to arrest or disperse the members of that body. I think it would not be justifiable, nor efficient for the desired object. I therefore conclude that it is only left to the commanding general to watch and await their action, which, if it shall be to arm their people against the United States, he is to adopt the most prompt and efficient means to counteract, and in the extremest necessity, the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. Often referred to as the Great Writ, habeas corpus is the constitutional protection against unlawful and indefinite imprisonment. It comes from the Latin, meaning, show me the body, and has been used as a safeguard against executive overreach. The Constitution mentions the writ of habeas corpus only once, and allows Congress, not the President, to suspend it. And historically, instances where individuals suspended habeas corpus rather than Congress have not gone well. When General Andrew Jackson did it during the Battle of New Orleans in 1815, he was fined $1,000 by a federal judge. Scott's fears of secession in Annapolis proved ill-founded, but the troubles in Baltimore made him and Lincoln nervous. In another letter to General Scott two days after the Annapolis scare, Lincoln gave his first authorization of the suspension of the writ in an effort to protect the railroads between Washington and Philadelphia and ensure that the Union Army had a safe route to the capital. In May... With the support of Secretary of State William Seward, Lincoln suspended the writ publicly for the first time in the state of Florida. To many Union officers in Florida, Lincoln's proclamation simply reflected the realities on the ground. Scholars argue that the president's behavior during these tense early months showed that he believed that Southerners who seceded had abdicated their civil liberties under the Constitution, and that the lack of public protest validated his theory. In fact, before the president issued his proclamation, Colonel Harvey Brown of the Department of Florida issued his own proclamation suspending the writ. And since he did not face severe public pushback, similar actions regarding civil liberties became easier for Lincoln. 
and in the first year of the war, he assigned Secretary of State William Seward to oversee the matters. Seward was a prominent New York abolitionist and one of the leading political figures of his era. He served in the Senate for nearly two decades, while also serving as governor of New York before running for the Republican presidential nomination in 1860. He lost to Lincoln on the third ballot. Determined to show unity within the party, Lincoln quickly turned to Seward for guidance after his election. It was Seward that helped rewrite Lincoln's first inaugural address, and it was Seward that helped Lincoln try to make sense of the political chaos in the early days of the Civil War. This fueled rumors that Seward was the kingpin of Republican politics, and the real power behind the president. Seward seemingly shared this belief, and carried it to unrestrained limits. In fact, during the war, Seward boasted to the British Prime Minister that he could ring a bell from his desk in Washington and have anyone arrested in the United States. The truth is, while Seward did wield immense control over military arrests during the first year, he and the State Department ordered very few of them. Most were done by military commanders on the ground in the border states. In fact, the State Department spent most of its time trying to figure out what happened to political prisoners. The federal government was ill-equipped and inefficient in carrying out the tasks, and was often unable to track down accurate information about the prisoners. Even worse than being unable to figure out what happened to political prisoners, the State Department often found out about the arrest through lawyers or distressed relatives, and not from military or government officials. Focused on regional stabilization, Lincoln and Seward gave the Union Army permission to confiscate, monitor, and censor communications sent via mail and wire, including newspapers and telegraphs. Northern newspapers were shuttered and reporters arrested. Some of those who retaliated after government suppression of speech and expression were arrested and held without warrants or due process of law. If you look at the powers that were exercised during the suspension of habeas corpus, you see a story that often happens when you remove the constraints of governmental power. And that is, that power is used not just to prevent emergencies, but also to prevent uh, dissent. This is Robert Corn Revere, chief counsel for the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Robert is a prominent thinker, writer, and advocate for the First Amendment, who recently published the book, The Mind of the Censor and the Eye of the Beholder. Newspapers shut down and newspaper editors jailed during the suspension of habeas corpus rivals the number of newspaper and may exceed the number of newspaper editors that were jailed during the Aliens and Sedition Acts post-Revolutionary uh, War, an action that has been universally acknowledged to be a violation of the letter and spirit of the, of the First Amendment. But in this case, you had editors arrested and um, held without charge, newspapers shut down. Key among them was a newspaper run by Francis Key Howard, who was the grandson of Francis Scott Key, who wrote the Star-Spangled Banner. And he was imprisoned simply for writing an editorial saying that uh, the um, uh, war against the South was a mistake and later wrote a book about his experiences called 14 Months in American Bastilles. There were people who were imprisoned during this time simply for selling copies of his book. So you can see how emergency powers exercised for arguably very good reasons can be used to become agents of suppression. 
In Cincinnati, a man was arrested for selling Confederate-themed envelopes and stationery. In Baltimore, it was illegal to display any items with portraits of Confederate generals. In Alexandria, Virginia, a pastor was arrested for omitting Lincoln from a prayer. Moses Stannard of Connecticut was arrested for raising a Confederate flag over his house and wishing the Confederates would kill the president and his cabinet. Because he delegated the responsibility of enforcing the suspension of the writ to local military officials, Lincoln often found out about political arrests after the fact, if he ever found out at all. Local military leaders were too eager to enforce Lincoln's orders. This left the president, who ordered the suspension in the first place, often frustrated. He believed that the arrest of newspapermen polarized the North even further. When Union General Ambrose Burnside censored the Chicago Times, one of the nation's largest anti-war newspapers, Lincoln ordered Burnside to revoke his order. When the Times resumed publication, it declared, The right of free speech has not passed away. We have, then, still a free press. But the damage was already done. The temporary closure of the Times is another point of contention among many who criticized Lincoln's administration to this day. As Lincoln wrote to a St. Louis-based general in 1863 upon hearing of the arrest of a newspaper editor, I regret to learn of the arrest of the Democrat editor. I fear this loses you the middle position I desired you to occupy. Three months into the American Civil War, and now having restricted civil liberties in several states, President Lincoln convened Congress for a special session to seek congressional approval for his actions. In his written remarks to Congress, Lincoln defended his declaration of martial law and the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. Now it is insisted that Congress, and not the executive, is vested with this power, but the Constitution itself is silent as to which or who is to exercise the power, and as the provision was plainly made for a dangerous emergency. It cannot be believed the framers of the instrument intended that in every case the danger should run its course until Congress could be called together, the very assembling of which might be prevented, as was intended in this case by the rebellion. Again, this is Joseph Fornieri, professor of political science at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Congress is out of session at this time, which makes, which makes the... Uh, the situation even more precarious. Lincoln could have summoned Congress in, in a special session, but some elections were still taking place. There was no uniform uh, election date at, at this time. States were running their own elections. Lincoln never believed he broke the law. But even if he did, Lincoln claimed that he would rather break one law than let the nation fall apart. And because Congress was out of session when the attack on Fort Sumner took place, it was incumbent upon the president to act decisively to ensure the maintenance of the Union. Basically, Lincoln's rationale was act now and apologize later. The legality and propriety of what has been done under it are questioned, and the attention of the country has been called to the proposition that one who is sworn to take care that the laws be faithfully executed should not himself violate them. Are all the laws but one to go unexecuted? And the government itself go to pieces, lest that one be violated? Even in such a case, would not the official oath be broken if the government should be overthrown when it was believed that disregarding the single law would tend to preserve it? 
but it was not believed that this question was presented. It was not believed that any law was violated. Lincoln really reveals himself to be a, a master lawyer. The, the argument is multifaceted, and, and sometimes we lose sight of this. The first part of the argument starts with a hypothetical, and that is the all the laws but one argument. It's kind of an appeal to Lockean prerogative. John Locke uh, gives the example of the fire in London, and although it's against the law to demolish a home, it may be necessary to break the law in order to save the law by analogy to burn a neighboring house to contain the fire. And so this is, this is Locke's description of prerogative, and it's comparable to Lincoln's initial argument, which I think is, is provisional or hypothetical, that he had to suspend the writ of habeas corpus and break his oath in a limited sense uh, to uphold the Constitution, the government, and the rule of law. And then after he makes this argument, in other words, I would be justified. Even if the law was broken, he backtracks and said, no law was broken, in fact, because the Constitution in Article 1, Section 9, authorizes the suspension of habeas corpus in cases uh, of uh, invasion or rebellion where the public safety may require it. Now, of course, this is in Article 1. But Lincoln broadly construed this, saying, you know, the Constitution itself makes a distinction by including this, if you will, proviso or this exception between wartime and peacetime. Uh, and with Congress out of session, one could have a, a debate over which branch subsequently had the authority to do it, but the Constitution clearly authorized it. And this was the, the emergency circumstances warranted it. And thus, Lincoln argued that the Constitution provides flexibility in times of war to, to bend without breaking, and, and, and thus he was justified. It's a masterful argument. Political reactions to Lincoln's justification were mixed. Congress supported Lincoln and passed the Habeas Corpus Act of 1863, which authorized Lincoln suspending the writ in the first place. The Supreme Court, however, was a different story. In the aftermath of the Baltimore riots, John Merriman, a Confederate sympathizer and Maryland militia officer, worked with others to destroy the railroad bridges leading in and out of the city, helping cause the panic that led to Lincoln's first suspension of the writ. For his actions, Merriman was arrested and imprisoned at Fort McHenry outside of Baltimore without a warrant. Chief Justice Roger Taney filed his objections to the arrest as ex parte Merriman in June of 1861. But because Lincoln believed that the Constitution was silent as to who had the authority to execute the suspension of the writ, and because Congress was out of session and incapable of handling the crisis until they reconvened, the president ignored ex parte Merriman completely. It was decided at the time when there was concern about whether or not events in Maryland would result in Washington being surrounded. Uh, and so the sense of emergency at the time says a lot for why that case was decided as it was, although <laughs> keep in mind at the time, uh, Chief Justice uh, Taney 
had declared that this was a violation of the Constitution. It's just that the court couldn't do anything about it because the military authorities refused to uh, enforce the uh, the uh, writ. And Lincoln explained that he wasn't going to obey it and disagreed with Taney as to uh, whether or not this was a violation of, uh, of the Constitution. Ex parte Merriman would only be the first of many legal challenges to Lincoln's suspension of civil liberties. It also set up a dynamic political struggle in the midst of the greatest crisis the nation has ever faced. To varying degrees, each branch of the federal government had a different understanding of how the president could act. And over the course of the war, the courts would do what they could to push back against Lincoln when they thought he was stepping over the line, like in Merriman. But the courts defended Lincoln from time to time. Back when the Confederates attacked Fort Sumner in April 1861, Lincoln ordered a blockade of southern ports, with the Navy seizing multiple merchant vessels in the process. Under Lincoln's order, the ships and their cargo were seized and forfeited as a prize, regardless of the owner's nationality or loyalty. A group of merchants sued, arguing that Lincoln acted outside his presidential powers when he ordered the blockade without a formal declaration of war. Collectively, these lawsuits became known as the prize cases. The question in the prize cases was simply whether or not uh, the president had the ability to order a blockade on ports with whom we were not technically at war. Um, the court vindicated his use of executive authority in that instance, saying that they were, while maybe not a declared war at the time, that uh, they were belligerents by virtue of having fired on Fort Sumter and other acts. In a 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court, still under Chief Justice Roger Taney, found that the president did have the power to act. But while the Supreme Court sided with Lincoln during the prize cases, they unanimously overruled him during the third of the Civil War cases. Ex parte Milligan was decided in 1866. It was decided after the Civil War was over, and it had to do with whether or not the president had the power to try people who had been arrested during the suspension of habeas corpus using military tribunals. And so I think the fact that it was decided after the war was over had a lot to do with the fact that uh, uh, the court reached the decision that while the courts are open, the civil courts are open, that it is unconstitutional to impose law using military tribunals. In October 1864, Lambden Milligan of Indianapolis, Indiana was arrested for plotting to steal weapons and free Confederate soldiers hell in prisoner of war camps. He was tried, convicted, and sentenced to be hanged by a military commission in Indianapolis. Desperate, he appealed to a federal court. The Supreme Court took Milligan's case in 1866 and decided unanimously in Milligan's favor in the court decision Ex Parte Milligan, which dealt a devastating blow to Lincoln's legacy regarding civil liberties. The court, now under a Lincoln-appointed Chief Justice, argued that the president had no authority to establish military commissions. More specifically, the president had no authority to do so when the federal courts were open and operating. While limiting presidential power, the decision came too late to affect the shifting dynamics of the Civil War. By the time Ex parte Milligan was decided, the American Civil War had ended. The Union emerged victorious when General Robert E. Lee of the Army of Northern Virginia surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse on April 9, 1865. 
1865, and President Lincoln, the controversial figure at the heart of the war, was assassinated less than a week later. The legacy of the Civil War and the long story of civil liberties is murky and messy. Reporters were censored, and newspapers were shuttered. Protesters were arrested, and telegraphs were confiscated. Between 1861 and 1865, somewhere between 18 and 32,000 American citizens were arrested. We are always at risk of the guarantees of the Constitution and Bill of Rights being taken away, that as is often said that the price of liberty is eternal vigilance, and these cases represent the push and pull between perceived emergencies, some of them real, some of them not, and the protections of law for individual liberties. I believe the ultimate story that comes out of that is a cautionary tale that says that we can preserve our liberties in spite of significant challenges. Franklin famously warned that those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. But equally valid is Justice Jackson's admonition a century later that the, the Constitutional Bill of Rights is not a suicide pact. It's a matter of balancing these. And there's, there's not going to be a, a, a perfect algorithm. As I've said many times before, the story of America is the story of one people with many voices. And with those many voices come many perspectives. And as we've seen, there are plenty regarding the controversial decisions that were made during the war. In war, civil liberties can be hard to uphold, and our rights can be difficult to defend. This chapter in America's history shows how hard it can be. After all, the story of civil liberties in the Civil War is the story of the tug and pull of the rule of law. We see the system, the rule of law, being tested and trying to find some kind of equilibrium where you have the courts at first acquiescing to the use of power and then as uh, the emergency subsides, then reinforcing the protections that we were guaranteed in, in the Constitution and Bill of Rights. It's a dramatic political struggle in the midst of the greatest crisis of our history. And yet, somehow, the rule of law prevailed. Our institutions remained. And our country was kept as one. And slowly, the lessons of the Civil War would begin to shape how we view the First Amendment to this very day. <laughs>